rest of you can open up your Bible to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 10 through 11. Now, if you're just joining us this week, we are in a very deep dive on Romans 5 this fall. Very, very, very deep dive. We've been going for, I don't know, a lot of sermons now, and we're just at verses 10 and 11. We've got more space to cover. We've dove into Romans 5 in a deep way because there's a lot of deep, deep things in Romans 5. We wanted to take our time in these verses. And so today, we're going to look at what I just talked about with the kiddos, which is reconciliation and what reconciliation leads to. Maybe you can remember your first enemy, your first foe, your first villain. I certainly can. His name was Von Christie. Von Christie, that just sounds like the name of a middle school bully. And I've told stories about Vaughn before, but Vaughn was the biggest boy in our grade, and he loved letting everyone else know. Vaughn's deepest transgression against me was he ripped up a Michael Jordan basketball card of mine. Oh, oh yeah, you feel it. You feel it, all right? You, you, I, I could feel it. I could feel you feeling it. And the reality is this. I, I need to stop using Vaughn's real name. Vaughn, if you hear this after the fact, I need to give him a pseudonym. Uh, Yvonne, if you hear this after the fact, I forgive you, and I really hope you're doing well. So, um, but when, when I think about my first enemy, my first foe, my first villain, I, I think about Vaughn. Maybe for you it was a kid on the playground. Maybe they were on the other team. Maybe they beat you up. Maybe more seriously, your first enemy wasn't something silly like that. Maybe it was something more serious. It was someone who wasn't there when you needed them, someone who really hurt you, someone who disappointed you deeply. But when we look at the Christian story, we find out a surprising truth, a truth that made all these kids gasp, which is this. We're born into this world. Our first enemy is actually God. Now, that surprises us, just like it surprised them. And if we really grapple with it, we're often kind of startled by that reality. It doesn't seem like God would be the kind of person who has enemies. And yet what we find out and what we found out already in Romans is that we're born into this world at odds with God. And the problem isn't with God. The problem is with us. The problem isn't that God chose to do something or chose not to do something. The problem isn't some lack of God's love or lack of God's grace. The problem is we're born into this world having already rebelled and rejected God. Now, we're going to spend all next week talking about that. Romans 5, 12 through 14 is going to say a lot about sin. Sin is really the problem between us and God. That's where the problem starts. So if our first enemy is God, then what do we do about that? What do we do about that? Because that... that that seems like a really big problem that we need to reckon with. If our first enemy is God, what, what do we do then? Well, Paul wants us to see something here. He wants us to see that at the heart of the gospel, there are many miracles. And there are. But one of the greatest miracles is the miracle of reconciliation. Is the miracle of reconciliation. So here's your big idea for today. If you're writing down, you're like, what's the main idea? Here it is. Reconciliation with God leads to deep rejoicing and deep reconciliation. Reconciliation with God leads to deep rejoicing and deep reconciliation. I'm going to read Romans 5, 10, and 11, those verses. They'll be on the screen as well. And then I'll say this is the word of the Lord. The reason we do that is so that we can give thanks to God. He hasn't left his people in silence. He's spoken. So let me read Romans 5, beginning in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son... Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. So when we kick off in verse 10, we hear this, for if while we were enemies, while we were enemies, it turns out that our first enemy is God. Whether we know it or not, we are born into this world. We are objects of God's wrath. Why? Because of our rebellion and rejection. This problem goes all the way back to the start of the story. That's when we became God's enemies, through the actions of Adam and Eve in the garden. It wasn't just some fruit from some tree. It was rebellion and rejection of God's rule and reign. And they functioned as humanity's representatives and ambassadors. What they did was seen as what we did. Their actions were given over to us. That's how we became God's enemies, through the sin or transgression of Adam and Eve. And that sin and transgression has been passed down and passed down and passed down. And all of humanity was in Adam when Adam sinned. And when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Now, we often think of enemies as those people who get in our way, those who hurt us, those who want to hurt us. But God's enemies are those who have rejected God. They've rejected God, they've rejected God's rule and reign, and they stay or persist in that rejection. Paul begins in verse 10, for if while we were enemies, see, that is our natural state. We're, We're born into this world at war with God. Now, I know that that offends our sensibilities. Nobody likes to hear that. But see, the miracle of God's grace in love is not minimized by the fact that we're born into this world having rejected him. It's magnified by it. God's love and grace is not extended to those people who, in any other circumstances, would have loved and worshipped and chosen God. It's extended to the people who deserve it the least. That's love and grace. That's a mighty love and grace. And this is what Paul wants us to see. God does something. Something that we would be, and I think are often are, hesitant to do with our enemies, right? God reconciles his enemies. And he doesn't do it through some abstract means. He does it through the death of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So what's reconciliation, right? Because this is what Paul says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. What is this reconciling work? Well, Paul in Romans 5 has been using the language of justification. We've talked a lot about justification, haven't we? God declares us righteous in Jesus. We've used legal imagery to talk about justification because it's a word with legal meaning. Reconciliation is a bit more personal. if, If justification is a bit more legal a bit more conceptual. Reconciliation is a bit more personal. You see, I can say something about you from over here, but reconciliation is a bit more like God's holy hug of his estranged people. Reconciliation is more personal. It's it's more intimate. It's rooted in this language of justification, but it says more than that. To reconcile is to bring two parties together, to make peace between two estranged or hostile or warring parties. That's what reconciliation is, and this is what God has done, is that he has taken us who are born into this world at odds with God, And he has, through the death of Jesus, reconciled us to God. He hasn't just shouted something that's true about us from the heavens. He's welcomed us in. 
You see, God's work in salvation isn't merely one of forgiveness. It's also one of fellowship. And I am always surprised at how easy it is for me to forget this. And maybe it's easy for you to forget it as well. We often think about the Christian life as God forgives. This is true. It's the foundation of our life with God. But it is a foundation upon which God builds something beautiful and something that we often keep at arm's length, which is the fellowship that we have with God. See, God doesn't just forgive us and then say, okay, now stay away. God forgives us in order that he might welcome us into his fellowship. This work of reconciliation is God closing the gap between us and him. And it's not done bit by bit. Look at what Paul says. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This reconciled is in the past tense. It is something that God accomplishes for his people in Jesus Christ. You see, because of the work of Christ with God, we aren't merely forgiven. We are welcomed are welcomed. Now, how would that change how you relate to God? If, if the primary and exclusive way that you think about your relationship to God is one of forgiveness, you'll always come to God as a beggar and a debtor looking to be forgiven. And listen, we have been forgiven. I'm not minimizing that. But God's grace and love is not merely forgiveness, though it is forgiveness. It's also welcome. It's also delight. If you show up at my front door, I'm not extending forgiveness when I bring you into my home. You know? I'm extending welcome. So too, God, when you come to God and you receive forgiveness, God isn't inviting you into his home to live forever as a debtor. He's inviting you into fellowship with God so you can live forever as a beloved child of God. Those are very different things. And yet God's grace and salvation accomplishes both. That's incredibly good news. And it's magnified by virtue of the fact that we're born into this world saying, God, if you invite me into your home, I want nothing to do with you. God is such a gracious and generous host. He doesn't just invite his friends in. He invites the neighbor on the block that nobody wants to have in their home. That's you. That's me. You know? We all have somebody for whom bringing them into our house is an act of love. Yeah? Just think for a second. You probably have somebody, maybe a coworker, who you'd be like, man, I hope they don't show up to the happy hour, you know? You know, the person that you, you wish doesn't sign into the Zoom call, the person that you really hope doesn't show up to the neighborhood cookout, like those people. We, we all have people like that because our hearts aren't as gracious and generous as God's are. But here's the reality. We are those people in the sight of God. We don't belong there. We're the ones that are hard to be around. And yet God, through his grace and love, he redeems us. Reconciliation is this profound reality. Even though we are born as spiritual terrorists, in salvation, God makes us sons and daughters. He makes us sons and daughters. Why is this good? Why is it good that God's grace and salvation isn't just forgiveness, but it's welcome? Because let me tell you this. God's presence is where there is fullness of joy. 
God's presence is where the hope and the love and the peace and the joy that we're looking for exist. If God's forgiveness was granted to us so that we weren't welcomed into his presence, we would still be lacking the thing that we desire the most, which is all of the good treasure that God has in himself. God's presence is good. We can't enter into it unless God welcomes us in. And through the work of reconciliation, God does the work to welcome us in to the very presence of God where there is fullness of joy. But this also shapes not just how we view God and relate to God, but how we view one another. I mean, just consider for a moment. I wonder what it might mean for us that God treats his enemies this way. What do you think it might mean for us that God treats those who are his enemies like this? That this is how God treats us. Because do we often do this with our enemies? No. We avoid them. Maybe we slander them. We harbor bitterness against them. We discredit them. We hate them. That's often how we treat enemies. And yet God doesn't treat us who are his enemies by nature this way. I wonder what it might say about us. I wonder how it might look in our lives if we begin to treat our enemies the way that God has treated us. And listen, I'm not suggesting that we should look past genuine evil, genuine wrongs, genuine falsehood. God's love, kindness, and grace is meant to lead people to repentance, and it does. But let me tell you something. One fruit of having been reconciled to God, one fruit of having been moved from war with God to friendship with God through reconciliation is this. You begin to treat your enemies the way that God treats his enemies. Now that... It's a prophetic word for our moment. What would it look like for you online to treat your enemies the way that God treats his enemies? What would it look like for you when no one is watching to treat your enemies the way that God treats his enemies? What would it look like for you when you're around all of those other people who also don't like this person for you to treat your enemies like God treats his enemies? It would change things, I imagine. Because you have been treated differently. You have been reconciled to God. But that's not where Paul stops. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. I told you last week, Paul uses this phrase throughout Romans. Now he's going to try to build on top of that. He wants to see that what's coming is better than what's already come. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is the same tension I talked about last week, which is that salvation is something that has happened is happening, and it will happen. Christian salvation is something that has happened in the past in Jesus, is happening right now by the power of the Holy Spirit, and will happen in the future at the day of judgment, the end of the world. So when Paul says, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So this idea is a reference to the future judgment of God and the salvation that we have because of what has happened in the past. This salvation comes from, it comes through the life of Christ Jesus. This is a nod to what is the mega doctrine of salvation, the bedrock of the Christian perspective on salvation, the doctrine of union with Christ. The doctrine of union with Christ. This is the idea that we are not only united to Christ in his death, but also in his resurrection. Paul has been talking about the role that Christ's death plays in our salvation, but the good news of the gospel is not that Christ died and stayed dead, it's that Christ died and rose again. See, Paul wants us to see that Christian salvation isn't just rooted in the death of the Son of God. 
It's rooted in the death and resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, both his dying and his living. You see, Christ is the home of all the hopes of salvation because Christ is alive. Christ is the refuge that we can access of all redemptive resources because Christ is alive. Christ is the source today of all saving benefits because Christ is alive. And our union with Christ is a dynamic and living union. We are living our lives with God in the life of Jesus. And Jesus is living and ruling, and reigning at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Right now, right this very moment, the Christian exists in Jesus Christ as the Son of God exists at the right hand of the Father. And this is incredibly important because it is true for us that the Christian is carried by and carries within themselves the life and the living of Jesus Christ. Who keeps Christ people in their waking moments, in their living, in every hour between now and our death or now and the time of the Lord's return, Jesus keeps us. The living Christ keeps his living people. He protects them. He shelters them. He guides them. He directs them. He watches over them. He intercedes on their behalf. Why? Because he is living. Jesus Christ isn't just a static reality of the past. He is a living reality of the present, and he is a future realized reality in the day of his second coming. And we're caught up in all of that. You remember when you would play uh, tag or play hide-and-go-seek as a kid? You'd always establish a home base, right? A safety, some spot that you couldn't be tagged in. When you were there, you were safe. You couldn't be tagged. Christ Jesus is the safety location for the Christian. But it's not just one location that we have to get to. It's not church on Sunday morning, though this is a vital reminder of these truths on a weekly basis. Christ, living in Christ, he goes with you wherever you go. You're going, you're rising up and you're lying down. You go everywhere that you go as a Christian in the life of Jesus Christ. You are knit to him. His death and resurrection. This is that vital and living union that the Christian has in and with Jesus. And Jesus keeps us. He keeps us. And we need him to keep us. And if you don't think you need him to keep you, just wait till the storm comes. Because when the storm comes, it's going to feel like, well, I can't hold on any longer. And that's when you're going to realize you weren't holding on any time. It was always Jesus holding on to you, Right? It was always him keeping you. Jesus keeps us. He holds us. When we stumble, when we backslide, Christ doesn't lose his people. It is the living Christ that keeps his people living all the way to the end of all things. This is the doctrine of union with Christ. It's not that God forgives you and forgets you. God forgives you and he brings you into fellowship. That's what reconciliation is. And where do you have fellowship with God? In Jesus. In Jesus. And I want to take a moment here to speak to those who are experiencing discouragement. And that's a lot of us. Who are experiencing hopelessness. And that's a lot of us. Who are experiencing loneliness. And that's a lot of us. If you're experiencing discouragement, and hopelessness, and loneliness, the great news of the gospel is this. God will not abandon you. God will not abandon you. Forget you. 
When we gather on Sunday mornings here as a body of Christ, it's a reminder to us God keeps his people. God holds his people. He will not forget us. When we sing one song together, sometimes we don't even know if we believe the words that we're singing, do we? But the voice of the church reminds us these words are true even if I don't feel them to be true today. Even if I feel forgotten today, I know that I'm remembered. I know that I'm remembered by the God who is weaving this story together. Um, somebody, came, somebody said last week, um, I don't know who it was. They were walking in. And I, I said, hey, and I said their name. And they said, man, you guys are good with names here. And I said, you're a person. You're not forgotten. You're remembered. It's a value for us here. And I hope you've experienced it. We, we try to do that. But listen, we have limits. I've probably asked you your name before, after we've already met. I, and I'm sure I'll do it again. I'm, I'm limited. I've got limitations on the loves that I can hold, the names that I can know. But God doesn't. God never forgets his people. He never abandons them. And he doesn't wait for you to show up on Sunday morning. He's going to go to you on Thursday afternoon. And he's going to say, you feel forgotten today, but you are not forgotten. You are not abandoned. You are kept even when you don't know you're being kept. This is good news for the lonely and for the discouraged and the hopeless, which is that your feelings are not always a good barometer for how God feels about you. Oftentimes, your feelings are going to tell you lies about how God feels about you. God's love is not contingent on your felt experience of his love. He loves you because you're in the Son of God, and that love has been unbroken forever. Paul says that this reconciliation, it leads to something. Look at verse 11. Okay, so if Paul is talking about reconciliation, we're not just forgiven, we're invited into fellowship, we're not just forgiven, we're welcomed. What is the response to that? Look at verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul returns here to the theme of rejoicing. He uses the same phrase he used in verse 3. Look back at verse 3 if you've got your Bibles. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. So now Paul is, he's kind of tying a thread between verse 3 and verse 11. He began this idea with we rejoice in our sufferings, which we talked about how counterintuitive and countercultural that idea seems. But in verse 11, we hear once again this phrase, more than that, we also rejoice in God. Why? Because we have received reconciliation. Paul is saying rejoicing is the proper response to receiving reconciliation. We rejoice in worship because we were lost and God found us. We rejoice in worship because we were strangers and God has made us sons and daughters. We rejoice in worship because we were born forsaken and were born again into fellowship with God. We rejoice in worship because we were blind and now we see. We rejoice in worship because we were dead and God has made us alive together in Jesus. There is much, much, much to rejoice about. There is so much to give thanks for. There is so much to celebrate for. And rejoicing is the proper response to reconciliation. Now let me tell you something. Let me put my cards on the table. I don't know that we rejoice like that. I'm just being honest with you. This is an honest moment. If this is your first time with us, this is a pastor speaking to his people as one of the people. 
I don't know that we rejoice like this. I don't know that we rejoice like people who have received reconciliation. I don't know that we rejoice like people who were strangers and have been made sons and daughters. I don't know that we rejoice like people who were dead and God has made us alive in Christ. I don't, I don't know that we rejoice like that. I mean, let's just ask the question, what would our worship and rejoicing look like if we deeply believed that we had been forgiven a debt that we could never repay? What would our rejoicing look like if we believed that we had been reconciled and granted access to the presence of God where all the best things are? What would we rejoice like if we really believed that we had been rescued from the judgment of death, hell, and wrath? If we really believed those things, what would our rejoicing look like? Well, I think it would be marked by a few things. I think it would be urgent. I think it would be urgent. I think we'd be eager to rejoice. I think we'd be like, I cannot wait to get in there and celebrate these truths or be reminded of these truths. Because, man, it's easy to forget them in the normal course of life. I think we'd be urgent in our worship and are urgent in our rejoicing. I think we'd be expectant. I think we'd be expectant. I think we'd believe that rejoicing did something to us. I think we believe that rejoicing is going to shape us, that it's going to change us, that the songs that we're singing are truths that we have forgotten and we desperately need to remember them. I think we would say, I don't know, I don't care what obstacles are in my way to get to corporate worship on Sunday morning, I got to get there because I got to be reminded. I know that God's going to do something in, my, in the midst there. I know the Spirit of God is going to work in a fresh way through the preaching of His Word and through the receiving of the Lord's Supper and through the songs of God's people. I think it'd be urgent. I think it'd be expected. I think it'd be fervent. I think we'd be expressive in our rejoicing. I think we would be expressive in our rejoicing. I think that we would get as excited about this as we get about anything. I think we would say, you know what? This is incredible. This is good news. I've got to celebrate this. I think our worship would be warm. I think we'd be delighted to rejoice. I think we'd say, man, I don't, gosh, I, w- I want to get there early and I want to not sneak out early because I want to remember these things. I think that if we were rejoicing in a way that demonstrated our deep belief and a deep reconciliation, I think we might find ourselves doing a few things together more often. Praying with persistence. Holding on to the robes and the garments of Christ and saying, we beg you to move. I think there'd be prayer with persistence. I think there'd be celebrating with power. I think there'd be shouting with praise. I think there would be fellowshipping with peace. I think this is what deep rejoicing in light of deep reconciliation would look like. And I think we have room to grow here. I think we have room to grow. In his translation of these verses in the message, Eugene Peterson translates Romans 5, 10 through 11 this way. I think we have it on the screen. If we don't, I'll read it for you. It says this, If when we were at our worst, we were put on friendly terms with God by the sacrificial death of his son, now that we're at our best, Just think of how our lives will expand and deepen by means of his resurrection life. Now that we have actually received this amazing friendship with God, we are no longer content to simply say it in plodding prose. We sing and shout our praises to God through Jesus the Messiah. Now that we have actually received this amazing friendship with God, we are no longer content to say it in merely plodding prose. We sing and we shout our praises to God through Jesus. That, I, wonder, I wonder if we come to worship ready to say it in plotting prose. 
know what he means by that? He just means boring, mundane, reluctant. That's what he's talking about here. Or if we come prepared to celebrate the great work that God has done. Are we really glad to have been granted friendship with God? I think it's easy for us to take for granted the grace that God has supplied. I think it's easy for us to take for granted the salvation that Christ has accomplished, the gift of the Holy Spirit. But when we remember it, we encounter the wonder and joy of reconciliation, that we were orphans and God has invited us into his home to live as beloved children. And it leads to two responses, deep rejoicing and deep reconciliation. Having received reconciliation with God, it leads to deep rejoicing. Remembering the power of the good news and proclaiming and celebrating it through the worship of God and the proclamation of the name of Christ. That's deep rejoicing. That's what mission is. It's the overflow of a heart happy in worship to Jesus. When we go from this place, we go from this place and the hope is that we are humming the truths that we have heard. And we're doing it to a watching world. Our songs are a reflection on and a response to the great work of God. We don't just sing because we have to. We sing because we want to. To celebrate what God has done. Namely, that he has forgiven us and he has brought peace between us and God in Jesus. That's why we sing. We hear God's word so that we can remember and rejoice in the story of what God has done. We receive the Lord's Supper so that we can remember and rejoice in how God has accomplished it. Everything we do together when we gather in corporate worship, we do for the purpose of remembering, retelling, and rejoicing the good news of what God has done. We don't, these are things that we do not because we have to. There's not a quota right? There's no, in, there's no governing authority over our church that's enforcing these. There's no quality control person who sneaks in and, you know, secret shopper in the back that goes, ooh, demerits for not singing enough, for not doing the Lord's Supper. We do this because it's a way of remembering, of reinforcing, of retelling, and of rejoicing together. Our songs together on Sunday are things that we do when we read God's word and we hear God's word and we preach God's word and we remember the Lord's table. All of that is to cultivate deep rejoicing, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. We go out into the world having been fueled by this so that we can engage in the work of deep reconciliation. Having been reconciled to God, we now have been given the ministry of reconciliation. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. What does this mean? Well, it means that we begin to treat our enemies the way that God treats his enemies. We love our enemies. We practice forgiveness. We put bitterness aside. We look to right wrongs, to address injustice, to give the peace that we have received. When we rejoice in worship, we remember the story of our reconciliation. And it tucks down into the corners of our heart. And having remembered that, Having heard it retold to us again and having rejoiced in that, we go into the world as ministers of a deep reconciliation. And we look for all the broken and the desolate places, all the divisive places, and we say, God is inviting me to help bring reconciliation where there is division. God is helping uh, for me so that I might bring right where there has been wrong, to bring peace where there has been division, to bring forgiveness where there has been bitterness, to bring love where there has been hate. Let me just ask you one Question, when you hear about God's reconciling work in Jesus, do you feel compelled to enter into deep rejoicing, to give thanks to God for what he has done and deep reconciliation? 
to go out into the broken places of the world and say, God wants to make these places new. He wants to make them whole again, and he wants to use me to do it. This is what reconciliation with God leads to. Deep rejoicing in God, which overflows into deep reconciling work in the world. This is what God is inviting us into. The good news of the gospel is that God saves and God reigns. He invites us to worship him for who he is and for what he has done. And on the basis of that worship, to go out into the world, to do the good works that he has prepared beforehand, much of which in our broken and tired age will be the deep work of reconciliation. And it will be incredibly costly, more costly than we would be willing to pay if we have not been compelled that there is a greater love a deeper love, that we have been forgiven of everything, that we have been made sons and daughters, and now we can live as a free family of forgivers in a world that doesn't know the meaning of any of those words. That is good news. That's a story worth living not just on Sundays, but beginning on Sundays and into the week. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy in Jesus. I ask that as we respond to your word, in the Lord's Supper, and as we worship together in song, that you would bend our hearts to celebrate you through deep rejoicing and to invite us into the world for the deep work of reconciliation. We pray these things in the name of Christ, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.